0: So now we really do think that humpbacks do show empathy. We've seen this in dolphins, we've seen it in pilot whales, and now we're starting to see empathy in humpbacks. So if this animal has a sense of empathy, and again, we didn't know it at the time, we felt that somehow he understood by yeah. coming back. Yeah. Now we have some science to support that idea.
1: The global food system is facing unparalleled challenges and changes. So how can we reset for a better more sustainable future. Introducing Control Alt Meat, the weekly podcast that explores the issues transforming the global food business. I'm your host, Katie Briefel. Come join me as I speak to the innovators and investors, policymakers and product developers, the scientists and the chefs who are all on the front line reshaping the future of our food. This week's episode of control alt Meat is with Diana Reese, a professor of psychology at Hunter College and in the graduate program of animal behavior and comparative psychology at the City University of New York. Reese's research is focused on understanding cognition and communication in dolphins and other cetaceans. In the episode, we discuss how her groundbreaking study of dolphins unlocked insights about how animals can have a profoundly strong sense of self and social awareness. We talk about the implications of that work, the interplay between science and activism, and how she has gone on to affect real change and influence policy. Diana, thank you so much for coming on to Control alt Meat.
0: Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Of course. So you're an internationally renowned expert on dolphin intelligence, but you started your career in the arts. Um, So I'd love to hear why you made that switch from the arts to science and in particular studying dolphin cognition.
0: Well, I, I was always torn between being a scientist and, and, and working in the arts. I worked, uh, I actually spent a lot of time when I was a kid rescuing animals that had been, you know, that needed rescuing, like abandoned bunnies and things <laughs> like this. Um, and I always sort of had this impulse to, to help animals. Um, I felt a rapport with them, a, a, a real kinship with them. Um, but then I decided to go into, um, I decided to go into in the theater and I worked as a stage designer um, in a very experimental theater company. I was in an MFA program, which I never finished because then I really just started working in theater. And then um, at one point uh, I had I was reading an article in the New York Times and it was about whaling. I just remember this very vividly. And they, it was a discussion about whaling and the numbers of animals that were being killed. And I remember reading it and thinking, we don't know anything about these animals yet and we're slaughtering them and perhaps doing some really good science and understanding more about them would have an impact on how we treat them. And that really moved me into going into a PhD program to study animal behavior. Uh, It wasn't specifically with studying um, specific species at that time, but then I got really engaged in studying dolphins specifically. Dolphins have the second largest brain relative to their body size, next to humans. They also um, are highly social like us. They share many of the characteristics uh, that we that we have, yet we don't know very, We at the time this was back in the early eighties, we didn't know that much about them. And this has been a, a real honor for me to have the opportunity to study them, learn about them, have these up close and personal relationships with them, and then be able to come back with, science, you know, science about them, but also narratives about them, these stories Mm. that I think will hopefully uh, impact how people see dolphins.
1: I'd love to touch on that because you documented some incredible discoveries when you were studying dolphin behavior up close. I'd love to hear some of some of those.
0: Well, yeah, I had the ability um, and the opportunity, I should say, to watch um, the first stages of interaction between mothers and calves. So we had the first births of dolphins at my lab in California. Uh, this was, uh, it was two female dolphins that were, that were, um, that gave birth to young, to young dolphins. Let me say, say this again. I was, I had the opportunity to watch the interactions between two uh, new mothers and their offspring uh, at my lab at Marine World. Uh, Africa USA in California. It was my first lab, and we um, we watched it. the more experienced mom was with her youngster. They were swimming. She actually even adjusted the respiration rate of her calf. So in other words, young dolphins breathe more frequently than do adults. They don't have the the lung capacity. And this one mother Terry actually, you know, the dolphin and mo- mom are swimming together almost constantly, and she would actually put her rostrum or her beak. Over the blowhole—that's how dolphins breathe. It's their nostrils. Over the br- blowhole of the of the her uh, calf, and actually adjust its breath rate. Wow. I mean, it was really a fascinating uh, opportunity to watch how they actually can help regulate. The second mother, Circe, who gave birth, was completely inexperienced, and dolphins, like us and gorillas and other large-brained animals, often have to learn from the older animals what to do. It doesn't necessarily come naturally. And um this young dolphin gave birth and her calf is kind of bobbing at the surface and it's kind of like duh, she didn't know what to do. She just she just sort of was floating there. new
1: mom panicking.
0: (laughs) I mean we you know we were all kind of thinking what's going to happen here. And um Terry, who was the experienced mother had given birth two days prior to that. And Terry moved her calf to where I was standing. I was standing against a wall, pushed her calf towards the wall where I was and another dolphin was kind of sandwiching it between us and turned her head towards Circe and produced a very complex whistle um, with Terry's own call in it, but then other, other complex calls. And Circe made a beeline to her calf, immediately you know started swimming with her calf and then followed Terry. And from that time on, she kind of followed what Terry did. And it was one of the cleanest examples of communication that I've ever seen. We haven't been able to decode that whistle, but that's part of the quest we're on now. We're trying to use computers and lots of uh, different approaches to decode the signals that dolphins use. And of course, they use a rich variety of whistles and uh, other types of vocal communication but also body language space the way they posture the way they orient to each other just like with humans and other animals those are also forms of communication and how do they use these multimodal signals to communicate because they are certainly communicating
1: yeah and I, I read somewhere that you said that they have two they can they're capable of making two sounds simultaneously so a click and a whistle I mean it's highly sophisticated isn't it
0: Yeah, it's even more than that. We published a paper. This was with one of the doctoral students in my lab, Daisy Kaplan. Uh, We've been doing field work in Bimini and Belize, watching wild dolphins. And um, what we discovered was they do what we call biphonation, which is producing two sounds at once. And it can be clicks and whistles. Others had seen this, but we reported this as well. But also two whistles at the same time, whistles and squawks. Um, And you see into uh, other signals that are that may be adding information to an existing signal. Um, we had to be very careful to know that it wasn't two dolphins producing the signals at the same time. These are really cases where it's one dolphin. So that's fascinating, but adds to the complexity of the whole situation and makes it even more difficult to decode.
1: Absolutely. And and you wrote about the sort of emergence of self-organized learning. So you started to teach the dolphins things. Um, you were using keyboards, for example, and then they started sort of developing that further. Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, definitely. That was probably one of my favorite studies. Because I I like to say that I partner with these dolphins. Um, Mm -hmm. Dolphins have been held in captivity for a long time in aquariums. Um, Now, I'm very happy to say that most aquariums, at least aquariums in the United States and some other countries, only have dolphins that have been born in captivity. They're no longer taking them from the wild, but there are still many places where they're taken from the wild. We can come back to this later because I'd really like to talk about this much more. Yeah. Um, but for those dolphins that are live are still in aquaria, I think it's our obligation to do to work with them in ways that that may give them more choice and control, that enrich their lives. Again, I think it's very important to have a sense of control and choice over your life, and often when we have uh, animals, not just dolphins, they have no means of asking for what they want. So I've been trying to find ways of giving them a voice. And in turn, while we're trying to enrich their lives, hopefully that, that's enriching our science. And in this case, it certainly did. This was, a, this was an early study I did in 1983. It was the, one of the first studies I did when I, had my, when I opened my lab that was really oriented to welfare and, and decoding and trying to understand them and giving them more opportunities for control. So we developed an underwater keyboard and it was a visual, it was, if you think about this visually, um, I'll actually, uh, it's a, it was a a keyboard that presented white symbols on a black background. If the dolphin hit one of the symbols, it, it um, broke a beam of light. It was all operated on light um, with fiber optic cables. So a light bulb ran it because it had to be super safe for the dolphins. We didn't Mm. want to problem with uh, any kind of injury and um, so if they pushed a, a symbol that and the symbols could move be moved from place to place on a nine key keyboard it would produce a whistle a computer-generated whistle that was different than the whistles the dolphins themselves were producing but within the time and frequency domain of their own calls because I wanted to move to something they could produce so they could be productive. Now, dolphins we knew were highly mimetic; they would imitate. But nobody had looked at how the process of vocal imitation, nor had they looked at how they learn their own signals from birth on. How, how they learn from. Yep. From uh, the other dolphins in their pools, because dolphins like us are vocal learners, and there's only a handful of animals so far that are vocal learner that show vocal learning. Most animals will produce a set of s- signals, but if they're not with other animals, they'll still produce them from birth once right. they when they're once they're developmentally able to. With dolphins, they learn from others. So we had these really big brained dolphins. They had, they were highly social. They could imitate sounds. And we took all those characteristics and designed this keyboard system. So what we found was when the dolphins hit a key, uh, and it was again, they were fed first, they could rest first, so they w- didn't have to use this. Mm-hmm. We watched what things they might want to ask for, and then we gave them the opportunity to do it using the keyboard. So there was a there was a ring key that they could get a toy ring, a toy ball, they could get tickles or rubs from us. These were all things that they would solicit wow. okay. And then they could if they touched that symbol, for example, if they touched the rub signal, they would hear a whistle like, if they touched the ball signal they would assemble they would hear a different signal and we recorded everything on video and audio so we had a total record of every session so this is what we found first the dolphins used it actively they explored the contingencies what happens when they get things we saw that they had specific preferences uh, one dolphin started using it actively that had the more the, was more dominant and had a more dominant mother and was more active in the beginning, the other dolphin watched and then started using it. (laughs) We started because we had the first births of dolphins in, uh, in Northern California. So they were with their moms and we started when they were 11 months old. What we found was they very rapidly began to imitate the signals themselves. They didn't have to imitate them to get rubs or balls or rings, but they did so. But they did it in a way that reminded me of the early stages of child language development okay. when children are first starting to learn. So for example, Pan was one of the dolphins, Delphi was the other dolphin. Um, they would they might come up to the keyboard, hit the ball sound, hear, and whistle ball right afterwards. We call that imitation. Right. Because it followed immediately. But they would also they also started to come up to the keyboard after they had been doing other things, playing with balls, get, or doing other activities. And then they would whistle ball and then hit the ball key. So that they've learned an association. Connected it, yeah. Absolutely, between the sounds and the objects. But they did even more. We found that when they were playing with balls, they would often whistle the ball sound when they were away from the keyboard prior to approach when they were approaching a ball or interacting with the ball they did this with rings as well so it reminded me very much of when young children um would be holding mm-hmm. a toy and if a little boy was playing with a, t- a particular ball let's say yeah. he might be saying hey ball ball and play with the ball it's very much what we saw with the dolphin
1: so highly sophisticated and, and impressive and, and you also led a, a groundbreaking study um, about dolphins being able to self-recognize in mirrors and you wrote a book called the dolphin in the mirror um I'd love for you to talk about that discovery and the implications for that
0: right well thank you yeah um that was a that was my other favorite study we did that with both dolphins and elephants um as well out of my lab and for about 40 years people thought that only our closest relatives the great apes did anything like this ability to recognize an external image of yourself in a mirror it's very it's highly sophisticated Mm. most animals don't understand that that reflection that what's in that mirror because it's really information if you want to think about it has to is there as a reflection of the themselves as their own of their own body. We used to think this was uniquely human. You know, we think that so many things that we do are unique to us. And through our science in many labs, um, we found that other animals are sharing so much of what we thought was uniquely human. In this case, we used to think human. You know, that we were the only ones who could recognize ourselves in a mirror. Then it was shown uh, by my colleague Gordon Gallup that. The great apes, our closest relatives, could also share, also share this ability. And again, there was forty years of discussion of papers why these should be the only animals showing it, other than us. And I and we thought, well, my colleague Lori Marino and I, and and as well as Gordon Gallup, uh, did an early study thinking, well, dolphins are really a great candidate for a study like this, because they share, again, large complex brains, they are highly social. And um, we did an early paper where we showed suggestive evidence that dolphins were doing this, this was in my lab, but we didn't quite nail the the controls we needed. And then in 2001, we published a paper, Laurie Marino and I published a paper out of my lab in the National, and it was the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, showing that dolphins also showed this ability. And we gave them uh, mirrors. This was done at my lab at the uh, New York Aquarium. It's part of the Wildlife Conservation Society. And uh, we gave them the mirror. We, We recorded all their behavior and we found that they indeed used this mirror to view themselves. They used it as a tool. They showed strikingly similar behaviors that we show, that great apes show. And interestingly, we saw later with elephants, they go through these three stages of in the process of realizing that it's themselves. Mm. But this is highly sophisticated. They have a sense of self. They, they are also highly aware of others. And for humans and chimps uh, and gorillas and orangutans, as well as dolphins and elephants, they're socially aware. So when one of their when when a a member of their social group is injured or is is involved in, you know, a certain situation, it may be a conflict situation. They're aware of what the situation is. And what we see is we see caregiving behavior, empathic kinds of behavior that they exhibit towards others. And what's so important about these findings, again, is that when this emerges, when this ability for mere self-recognition emerges in humans, in apes, in in dolphins and others, what it it seems to emerge right around the time that children are having that there is a um, a growth of connections in the child brain. It's between 18 and 24 months of age, and this is when they're becoming more socially aware. Mm-hmm. So self awareness, social awareness, empathy. All seems to happen at a particular age with kids. With dolphins, their social awareness ha- is highly uh, developed at a much younger age than children. Right. So after we did the first study, one of the doctoral students in my lab, Rachel Morrison, uh, and I did a study again at the National Aquarium this time. And we showed that dolphins actually show mirror self recognition much younger than children do they're socially aware at a much younger age we saw evidence for this as early as seven months
1: it's incredible and 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 you've said in the past that these investigations have meant that we are obliged as humans to change the way we act towards animals and you got involved with a an award-winning documentary called the cove Um, where you were the scientific advisor, and this is about the hunting of dolphins. I'd love for you to expand a bit about what that was and how you got involved in it.
0: Yeah, I'd love to thank you for asking me. So um, prior to that film, um, right after we did the mirror study, I was actually approached by a filmmaker who had footage of these dolphin drive hunts. I knew they had happened back in the nineties. There was a big expose in National Geographic uh, in the late nineties and it sort of made breaking news I thought it was over. And when I found out this was in 2001, when this one filmmaker um, told me that it was still going on, I, I checked the facts and I said, I have to get into this and become an advocate to stop this.
1: So what happens and, on these hunts for people who don't know?
0: Yeah. So on these hunts, dolphins and it's many dolphin species of dolphins and some whale species um, are driven by fishing, fishermen on boats. Uh, this generally, this has happened in Fudo. It's happening now in Taiji. It's been going on in Taiji for years. They herd the dolphins in uh, using a method called the Oikomi method, where they bang on metal pipes with hammers and they create an acoustic barrier behind the the dolphins that is aversive. And it, they move the dolphins using this 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 flotilla of boats into these what we call the killing coves, where the dolphins are held. Um, often, what happens is the first stage is they're uh, they're examined by aquariums, particularly in Japan and several other countries. Members of aquariums from Japan and other countries, and they select the animals that they want to bring into captivity for these aquariums. Um, the animals are obviously not being fed during this time; they're going undergoing a great deal of stress. And then the rest of the animals, at least this is this is the practice, will be then brought in and under a tarp. They used to, they would just, uh, they would actually drag the animals often by their tails where they would drown. They would move them to the, to the uh, shore where they would slaughter them in the most inhumane possible way. Now this had got, we had seen footage. I want to just give a graphic of a warning here for everybody. Um, They, when the original footage I saw, they would just slit them down their, their, their stomachs, right. Vis, viscerally. I mean, it was just horrifying to see this. And you'd see these dolphins flailing for minutes. Um, I mean, this is just inhumane. It's unacceptable by any standard. It, it has to stop. Over the years, they started claiming, and this was the government started claiming that they were doing this more humanely, and that certainly is not the case. What they would do is again, they would bring the animals into shore. Often these animals would drown as they dragged them in. But then they would have them tied again on, you know, tied to shore. And they would again. I'm warning everybody: this is really terrible. They would drive uh, a wooden stake near their blowhole into their into the area near their blowhole, thinking that they were doing what's called pithing, which is many. For many years in labs, you could quickly kill a very small uh, invertebrate like a frog by pithing it, which would be just dislocating the brain from the rest of the, the spinal cord. And it would be immediate if you knew what you were doing. Um, they they were doing, but you can't do this with mammals and larger animals, certainly. And they were doing this. So my colleagues and I wrote, have written several scientific papers um, and chapters about this technique not being humane at all, why it, from a veterinary point of view, we had a marine mammal vet mm-hmm. with us on this paper, Andy Butterworth, from a, from a veterinary point of view, from a social behavioral perspective, from a physiological point of view, this is you un- inhumane. And we keep on refuting this argument that it's a humane practice. So, um, you know, the, the issue here is this is still continuing. Mm-hmm. We could not break the news story for many years. I, I started up an organization called Act for Dolphins at that point in 2002, uh, when I was at the Wildlife Conservation Society and uh, Paul Boyle, who was the director of the New York Aquarium was working with us, Laurie Marino, my colleague on the paper was working with us. We had petitions by marine mammal scientists. And weren't you
1: you heavily involved in the sort of the labeling that we see today on tuna, sort of dolphin safe labeling?
0: That, yes. Um, So that was the first campaign I was involved in. That's been one of the most successful campaigns. Back in the midday, yeah, I,
1: I'd love to talk a little bit about that because here, what we're seeing is the the fusion of your scientific work going not in not only into sort of documentaries and storytelling in a way to try and change affect change, but also directly into the packaging and the way that we consume food, which is is really interesting. How do you see that interplay working?
0: Yeah, I think again, I think our science is uh, is what I call we can use the term translational science. We certainly talk about that applied or translational science for all sorts of biomedical devices. But I think it's really critical to take our science and apply it to policy management decisions, welfare decisions for other animals. And that's part of what I do in my work. I think it's critical. Um, I think more scientists also are coming out now where it was often seen as you shouldn't become an advocate because somehow it taints your work. I don't think that's at all the case. I think we're probably some of the best people to be speaking about this because we're the people who've been studying these animals. In the dolphin tuna situation, uh, once, it was, once it was shown and documented that dolphins were being trapped in these tuna nets, in these purse-sane uh, tuna nets off of our own coast in the Eastern Tropical Pacific here in the United States, I immediately became involved in this. And uh, we did a lot of TV. We did the, we did uh, many of the national and international television shows about this. I brought news uh, newscasters to my laboratory, showing them, introducing them to dolphins that I was working with that had names like Delphi and Pan, and that they have these capabilities. Right. These are the same dolphins that are being killed and are suffering in these nets. It personalizes it. Yes. And I think that when we can tell these narratives about these animals, that it's this pig, it's this cow that is showing this behavior with their offspring, with people that have these abilities that are like us in so many ways. And also maybe perhaps not like us, but that we need to appreciate those differences as well. That I hope that that touches the brains and the hearts of people and moves them to want to change policy
1: I think so because I think food choices aren't rational right we see that in manifest in lots of different ways we know rationally we shouldn't eat bad sugary food but we do for emotional reasons (laughs) and I think in this case as well we see that people maybe don't want to listen to facts and figures but when you see a dolphin that you've named that is performing these human-like behaviors suddenly that reaches humans on a more emotional level which it sounds like you agree with
0: Yeah, Katie, I think it's the narratives, the stories we tell that really are powerful. And we're not making up stories. These are real stories, but they're telling them in ways that make sense and that people can remember. It's like we can remember stories better than a lot of factoids. And I've worked at many zoos and aquariums with working with dolphins. Again, now I'm doing a lot of field research um, as well. But But I think that, you know, we know that people often will remember a story that someone tells them about this bear, about this pig, about this dolphin. And that's what they'll take. They may not take all those other facts. So you've
1: Mm -hmm. done this great work with with dolphins and tuna and what are the implications for other so animals like pigs and elephants that, as you say, are big brain mammals that are, I guess we're facing similar problems, pigs slaughtered in inhumane in ways? What do you think are the implications for the wider food system that cover these kind of animals?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that we could bring an end to factory farming. I hope also that we can bring an end to using animals as models and find other ways, you know, for science. I mean, I yes. think we have to improve our approaches altogether. I think, again, for for me as a scientist, understanding more about the inner worlds of pigs and sheep and goats and cows and chickens, you know, people don't even think about the, the, the secret lives of chickens. There's amazing work we know about chickens and how chickens and chickens, how they're reacting to other chickens and what their lives are. And I think it really changes your outlook on our relationship with these animals. And again, that's why I think our science is so powerful, but it's not just the science because if it's buried in books, people aren't gonna read about it. And I think it's the media that helps get these stories out, but you have to have scientists willing to, to do this work and eager to do mm. this work and then translate that into these palatable ways, you know, this pa- these palatable stories to get the information out. You know, with pigs, I'll give you an example. So many years ago, after we did the studies with dolphins, uh, a very interesting study, two interesting studies came out showing that pigs, while it wasn't shown that they use mirrors to in a way that suggests self-recognition, um, but they understand that they can use mirrors to find hidden food. Foods. They um, understand that this is a tool that they can use to find food that they wouldn't otherwise find. And another very smart animal, I mean, animals are all smart in their own ways, but another very smart animal, the African gray parrot. Many of you may have heard about Alex, the African gray parrot, who's I mean, Dr. Irene Pepperberg has worked with, who's been taught all these human words and can actually communicate in very sophisticated ways that we, that has really changed the way we think about the term bird brain. It's kind of a compliment now to say you're bird brain. Alex also didn't recognize himself in a mirror, but he used the mirror as a tool to find hidden foods. We, I mentioned that we did a study with elephants showing mirror self-recognition, but an earlier study was done with elephants and it suggested that they couldn't use a mirror to self to show mirror self-recognition, but they used it for mirror guided behavior. They used it to find hidden food. It's called mirror guided behavior, what pigs do. And we looked even more closely at elephants with slightly different techniques and found, indeed, they understand that that's themselves in a mirror. So, you know, I would love to see that study replicated with pigs, again, seeing what they would do if we give them mirror exposure for longer periods of time. I think that, again, sometimes we don't use quite the right technique.
1: So you're doing some incredible work um, on interspecies communication. I'd love for you to expand a bit and explain uh, what you're working on.
0: So um, I've been involved in this new initiative called the Interspecies Internet, or Interspecies IO, we use that term as well. And um, I'm working with three other collaborators, uh, Peter Gabriel, who's the musician and, and activist, Vince Cerf, who is the co-founder of the internet, for real. <laughs> so some and,
1: small, small fry people. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and and Neil Gershenfeld, who's the director of MIT Center for Bits and Atoms. Um, and these are just Stellar partners to have, and I'm honored to be working with them. Um, and we and Peter initially had this idea of an interspecies internet. This is not this does not mean an ape surfing the surfing a comp- the internet necessarily. What it really means is we're creating a forum to connect minds, to connect our minds with other minds of other animals that w- with which we share the planet, to connect human minds, uh, to get a forum of. Um, A multidisciplinary group of people, scientists studying animal behavior, animal cognition, trying to decode their signals, uh, people working in the AI domain, working with big data, other computer scientists, philosophers, artists, you know, again, this group of individuals who all share this dream to communicate with other animals or to discover how we might create interfaces for communication to decode. It's finding King Solomon's ring. I often talk about King Solomon's ring. King Solomon was said to have this magical ring that allowed him to communicate with other animals. And um, this was reinterpreted by one of the early ethologists, a a German scientist who studies animal behavior, Um, Konrad Lorenz, suggested in his book, In Search of King Solomon's Ring, that perhaps Solomon didn't have a magic ring, but he had the power to observe how animals communicate. And that gave him the power to communicate with them. So we're in search of King Solomon's ring. Um, Sometimes we talk about Dr. Doolittle had this power to communicate with animals as well. It's all the same idea, but it is creating this form. So what we've been doing is we've been running yearly meetings. Uh, We're having one coming up this July, on July 30th and July 31st. July 30th is a a working meeting invited only for scientists and, again, people who are working in this field. And then on the 31st, it's a public seminar series. And this will be our third year uh, of doing this because of the pandemic. uh, Last year and this year will be virtual online. So, um, but this has been really. We've been creating, a, uh, we have a growing audience. We have Slack channels where people can engage together and form new uh, collaborations. It's very exciting. So um, and today, yeah, and the Collar Foundation is involved in this. Uh, it's one of our sponsors as is MIT and Google. So essentially we're trying, we're trying to come up also with a Google Translate for animals. It's one <laughs> of our three projects. And the other is to create interfaces like the keyboard and the touchscreen I talked about and work that's been done with other animals and teaching sign language to create interfaces. And I would love to create interfaces for farm animals. I think we know now, for example, that horses can actually ask for a blanket to be removed or put back on, depending on the weather.
1: We did it.
0: We We had that scientist do a presentation at one of our first meetings. We don't think about horses being able to ask for things what if the cow could say i'm warm i want the blanket off i want the blanket on it would just lead to so
1: much more compassion with if we're going to continue to eat meat and if we're going to try and do it ethically how we can design systems around that that enable us to to be more empathetic and to to improve those systems if we have to
0: yeah it just shows that they're aware of their own situation Okay, so again, I think these have great power, uh, you know, for us to be able to enhance the welfare of other animals and give them voices. So it's a very exciting project. And uh, we're thrilled that the Collar Foundation is a supporter.
1: It's incredible. And we've talked a little bit about using your science and your knowledge for good. There's an incredible story. um, I think it was 1986, where it was Humphrey the whale who swam up the San Francisco Bay by accident and you got involved with the rescue. I'd love for you to tell that story.
0: Oh, this was a, this was a, one of the other highlights. Thanks for asking. Um, so this was actually 1985. It was the fall of 1985. Um, I was at my dolphin lab. I was a scientific advisor for the Mer- Mer- California Marine Mammal Rescue Center where we rescued dolphins and whales And I was in charge of behavioral work with the animals. We had vets who were caring for them in terms of veterinary care. And I got a call from the director saying, we have a very large, we have a large humpback whale that has entered San Francisco Bay and is not leaving. Can you help us? And I got involved in this rescue where we did not know how to get this whale out of this region because he not only, it actually turned out to be a she, but we thought it was a he, we named him Humphrey. He not only came into San Francisco Bay, but he traveled about 60 to 80 miles inland wow. up into these little, through, the, through a series of uh, bays, uh, inland bays, and up into these little canals that oh we call sluices that were about 60 feet wide. I mean, these are big animals. These are 45 ton, 45 foot animals. And in these little sluice, and we had cows grazing on the riverbanks, feet away from them. How how did he
1: get that far? Because I thought whales sort of had a good magnetic sense of, I don't know where they, I don't know the scientific... Details of that, but that's incredible. He got that We
0: don't know why he did it. There was all sorts of speculation, but he just headed north. So they the, <laughs> the, at the time, were on their southern migratory route into the waters of Baja, the warmer waters. This yes. was in the fall. And he took a trip inland. I mean, we have whales, we hear reports of whales coming into rivers uh, and bays all over the world, but usually they leave this guy just worked his way up. so to make a long <laughs> long story short and I write about this in the first chapter of my book uh, this about this rescue and actually we have a screenplay we're hoping to get produced about this because I hope th- okay. oh, that would
1: be brilliant yeah yeah it
0: really tells the private story but in, in essence what we did is we actually uh, used the very same Oikomi method I mentioned that's used to slaughter animals to herd animals into Taiji. We heard about this from my colleague, uh, uh, my colleague, Ken Norris, who, uh, who was one of the founders of the Marine Mammal Society. He said, we should try to use the zoicomi method that they used to use with dolphins. Wow. Um, and we, we made a flotilla of boats, very small fishing boats. We had a whole community helping us. And we banged on the pipes behind this and we were able to drive him down further south but it was only going to work temporarily. He did move south with this, but then he, when we got into deeper waters, we had to use sound playback. And what that means is you playback using an underwater speaker uh, sounds of either a predator to scare an animal away or their own sounds to attract them. When Humphrey first came into San Francisco Bay, I wasn't involved in the first weeks because we were moving our whole lab from one facility to another. I didn't get involved till the second week, but someone else tried to use, I think it was orca sounds to scare Humphrey out and he completely ignored it no response whatsoever and when this kind of technique has been used with other whales um prior to when we did it with Humphrey playback they might divert their their position a little bit but they don't it doesn't have a big effect we did the first successful playback we 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 were in deeper waters now with him we turned on this underwater speaker uh, where we had humpback whale sounds from Alaska, where they were feeding, and we turned on the we turned on the uh, speaker, and he made a beeline right for the boat, just like that. And we just started heading, uh, we started heading in the right direction. He followed our boat, but the really he followed our boat. It was just like calling a dog to the boat. But <laughs> I think the trick was that you know, he could habituate. He could get used to the sound and get tired of it. So again, this is the idea I got from the dolphins because I didn't have a clue what to do. I was put in charge of the playback and this one rescue, the rescue effort for this one with playback. And what I did is the night before I was at my lab and I'm thinking, oh God, nothing's worked with any in terms of playback with other animals. What am I going to do? And I was watching the dolphins that I had been studying and I watched when they used their sounds and it was generally they would call to each other when they were separate and then they would come together. Usually when dolphins are together, they're pretty quiet. And that's what I did with Humphrey. Again, I got this from the dolphins, this idea. And when he was away from me, I would use the sound to call him and he'd follow us for quite a long time. If he'd start drifting away, I'd play the sound and he'd come back to the boat. So that was wonderful. The best, and I'll just tell you this last little bit was that we got him out of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, We had to, Shut down bridges to get him through it. We had amazing help from a huge community of people. At the very end, he went out of the Golden Gate, outside of the Golden Gate Bridge with us, but he went the wrong direction again. He went north. And we all had all of our boats. We had literally a city on the sea outside of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, And our little boat was in the center. Like it was if you looked at, at it from a bird's eye view, our boat was in the center. We had identical boats, fishing boats circling us and then bigger military boats that the government had given us, Coast Guard boats and the U.S. Geological Survey boat. And this whale was going, went headed, Humphrey headed in the wrong direction. And then we said, shut off your engines. Let's just watch and listen. And he was gone for about 10 or 15 minutes. And suddenly he reappeared. He bypassed all the other boats. No one saw him. And he came to our boat. This is a humpback whale. No one saw him approach any of their boats. And suddenly he found our boat that didn't have a speaker hanging from it. Mm. This animal recognized our boat out of all the boats from the underside. There was no sound. Came to our boat, pressed his belly against our boat and looked up at us. We were all hanging over the side. This was our government. We had National Marine Fisheries Service people. What do you think uh, all it was, of those...
1: like an emotional connection to them or like?
0: So here's the punchline. You know, we all felt he was kind of coming back to sort of say, see ya. As You know, just it, it was kind of a nice it was an amazing it was more than nice. It was an amazing moment. Since then, we've learned that humpback whales show Empathy. We've seen there's been a number of observations and field studies showing that they will actually rescue when orcas will attack seals or other some other species. The humpbacks have intervened and try, and it looks like they're getting into caregiving or helping others. Um, there's there's a recent report as well of a humpback helping um, a marine mammal scientist who was uh, who was injured at one point. So now we, we really do think that humpbacks do show empathy, which is we've seen this in dolphins. We've seen it in pilot whales. This was our first case. You know, now we're starting to see empathy in humpbacks. So if this animal has a sense of empathy, and again, I, we didn't know it at the time. We felt that somehow he understood by yeah. coming back. Yeah. Now we have some science to support that idea. Incredible. And it's really profound when you see this, when you experience this yourself, And I use the word profound in, again, it's profound to see, to meet a mind like this, to have this kind of experience. And for me as a scientist, I, I, I really felt that it was important to write a screenplay about this, to write a chapter in my book about this, to share this experience, to share this story with others that perhaps don't have that experience. And hopefully that will make us care more. I'm hopeful that a film about Humphrey and this sort of what really happened will affect people worldwide. Hopefully in Japan and Russia, whaling
1: still occurs. But
0: we can do this with cows pigs as well and goats and get these stories out
1: absolutely i think increasing compassion helps people to understand the damage that we're doing and and i guess pivoting a bit to to zoom out a little bit we've talked a little bit about the damage being done to dolphins and the wildlife based on fishing but there are wider issues aren't there because sort of this unregulated and criminal fishing is basically it's estimated to constitute sort of half of our global catch of fish with four yeah. out of fish, four out of five species sort of under threat, and then also mm-hmm. fishing contributes to the majority of plastic pollution in the oceans. Um, I read somewhere that in the WWF says that it amounts to one plastic credit card per person per week, the amount of microplastics that we're consuming, which is staggering. To what extent do we need to totally overhaul our our entire fish um, system? Or is it just, do you think these sort of these larger mammals that we need to take more care of?
0: Well, when we think of fishing, we're thinking about bycatch. We're thinking about, you know, other byproducts like plastics, like you mentioned. We're think we're talking about, um, you know, gill net what's going on in the net, you know, gill nets with animals getting tangled in nets Mm. off of our own coast. Now we're involved in trying to find ways that fishermen can still make a living, but using ropeless, you know, ropeless traps where animals aren't getting caught and entangled in ropes that are connected, you know, to buoys at the surface. I mean, we, I do think we have to really rethink our whole fishing practices and um, really think about quotas, you know, The way we're going to do this, in my opinion, is finding ways that that it's a win-win for everybody. Mm. It has to be a win-win because if you think about people making living, uh, doing certain kinds of, you know, doing certain kinds of farming or certain kinds of fishing, how can we do this that it's sustainable? How can we do it that it will help the species, that will help the people? But also, I just want to make the point that, Often we just play the numbers game, you know, that it's all right to treat animals a certain way, to do factory farming, uh, or to, to, to have animals in an environment as long as the numbers stay up. That's a conservation situation. What about the individuals, the welfare aspects of it? As a scientist, I can't think of conservation without thinking about welfare as well because you can do a lot of damage to individual animals if it becomes just a numbers game so i hope that we can evolve or we can evolve in our thinking to think about the welfare of individuals and have that empathy for you know for the individual as well as conserving species and sustainability.
1: It's the incredible work that you're doing to drive our understanding and empathy that I think will help unlock that. Um, So thank you, Danette. Just to close off, if you could think of a single action or takeaway that would help make a difference to the way that we're um, sort of trying to change our food system to be more sustainable, uh, what would you encourage listeners to do?
0: So I think people are in different places in their lives with what they're eating. I think that Reducing the amount of animal products they use would be extremely helpful. I think starting perhaps to explore the alternatives that are out there, try it. I think people will find that if they try certain things that are not meat-based, but rather plant-based, they might be pleasantly surprised at how amazing it is. The the technology is, is is just getting unbelievable. I have many friends that are staunch meat eaters that love animals and they want to stop eating meat, but they thought, I'm not sure I'm ready to give this up. And when I've made them meals that are not meat-based, many of them have changed now. Mm -hmm. It's sort of giving it a chance. I think also reading about other animals. I think reading about the amazing discoveries about the lives of animals, about who they are. And I use the term who they are because they're really who's and we're realizing that they're who's. We have to change the pronouns that we use. I They're he's and she's and moms and dads and grandparents. And I think if we start thinking about that cow as a mother, that pig as a mother or a brother or a sister, it changes our perspective. It, cha- it will s- change our minds. And I think all those things taken together you know, are really going to help us make changes in our lives that are really needed.
1: Thank you so much, Diana. It's been such a joy speaking to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: It's a pleasure talking to you anytime. I'd love to talk anytime about this stuff. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Control Alt Meet. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on social media to help us reach more listeners like you. You can also visit controlaltmeet.com to learn more.